Campsite Media. This episode contains some references to suicide. We don't go into detail, but discretion is advised. Summer in Tokyo is the goddamn worst. We had been negotiating with Saito-san, the Yonigiya CEO from last episode, for a second Yonigiya interview for over a month and finally decided on July 2nd. But no one was ready for the premature heat wave that was going to hit Tokyo. Temperatures reached 100 and just wouldn't quit, and people were urged to stay inside. On the day of the interview, someone on Choco's train literally passed out right on top of her from heat stroke in a big sweaty mess. It was brutal. But we had finally snagged an interview with a former Yonigia client. He was once a successful golf course owner. We were grateful that they were willing to come in and talk to us in this heat. Shoko and I went to pick them up at a cafe near our studio to get them a drink. It was great to see Saito-san, decked out as usual and fanning herself with those glittery nails of hers. Her client, whose name was Sugimoto-san, was standing a little behind her sheepishly. He bowed to us very politely, as people often do in Japan. He was tall, tan, and wore a baseball cap that covered his buzz-cut hair. We asked him what he wanted, and he ordered an espresso shake, which happens to be what I always get. Saito-san said Sugimoto-san has a notorious sweet tooth and was like, you're in such good shape, no matter how much you eat, how do you do that? According to her, all the women in her Yonige company have a little crush on Sugimoto-san. I mean, I get it. He had a really clean look with his white polo and one of those black Arteryx backpacks. And he has one of those faces that looks like he's always cracking into a smile. Lots of laugh lines. Like overall, he just has a very positive vibe about him. Not someone you'd expect to have, you know, this dark, mysterious past. Sugimoto-san is 45 years old and has been working as a driver for Yonige TSC for about five years now. He drives the van, helps pack things up, and does Saito-san's bidding. It's usually my job, but I had him go yell at someone once. When he gets mad, he's super scary. <laughs> Come on, that's not true. Maybe he knows how to turn his anger on and off when he needs to, because back before he'd ever met Saito-san, he was the owner of one of the biggest golf clubs in Kyoto. Well, you could even say that it was the most popular golf course in the region. We were getting lots of customers. It was making a profit of about six to eight hundred million yen a year. That's anywhere from six to eight million dollars. A lot of money, especially for a young guy. Sugimoto-san had started running the golf course at age 24. It looked like he had it all. But also that was expected of him. Well, maybe it's kind of weird for me to say it, but I come from a prominent family in Kyoto. Everyone in my hometown knows them. Let me tell you, coming from a distinguished family in Kyoto is no joke. Think conservative, old money. There's a lot of expectation there to uphold tradition and keep up the spitting image of success and propriety. But Sugimoto did it. He was a successful businessman, well-liked by everyone and married with kids. He did everything right. There was just one thing getting in the way. So if it wasn't for the deposit, it would have been a very successful company. If only I was making more than I owe. I used to tell myself that just to make myself feel better. And he kept telling himself that, even after increasingly scary people started showing up at his office, demanding he give them their cash back. Millions and millions of dollars worth of cash. 
From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Gone with the Gods, Season 1 of The Evaporated. I'm Jake Adelstein. And I'm Shoko Planbeck. Episode 3, Sugimoto, You Bastard. Uh, I, I had money problems. There's a deposit system when you open a golf course in Japan that probably is unique to this country. When you first create a golf course, you have to borrow money from its members in the form of a deposit. And the deal is, you have to give it back after a certain period of time. Here's how it works. Members have to deposit a certain amount of money to a management company, which then uses the funds to build and operate the golf course. The money deposited is held without interest for a set period of time. Why would they do that? Well, members with the deposit have priority access for playing. Depending on the golf course, they may also participate in the club management. But they also have the right to demand their deposit back and withdraw their membership, usually after some set amount of time. This system is great for both members and owners and is generally risk-free, at least on paper. This is why it's used for about 90% of Japan's membership golf courses. I was supposed to be able to pay back 200 million to 500 million yen annually, but I was only able to prepare about 40 or 50 million yen. And the amount I was supposed to give back when the time came was close to 10 billion yen. 10 billion yen is about 100 million dollars, which is a terrifying number. Fun fact about me and Jake. We both scored 50th percentile on the math section of our SATs, so crunching numbers is not our forte. But even we can do the math for you. Sugimoto-san's company was making a lot of money, about $8 million a year, but it wasn't nearly enough to pay back the deposit. So basically, he was able to scrape up only about one-tenth of what he owed, and Sugimoto-san was painfully aware of this fact. To put it plainly, it is 100% impossible for pretty much any golf club to pay back that kind of money. I knew that, but I was trying to pay it back little by little. A golf course can defer their repayment schedule up to 15 years. Sugimoto-san must have felt like he had all the time in the world when he took on the deposits. He has that cocktail of optimism with a dash of cockiness that can make people think that everything will work out just fine. Until it's too late. The thing is, I, I was borrowing money from my friends, and also acquaintances, and putting it into my company. But even then, I still couldn't make ends meet. At this point, he realized that the best option would be to close his company and file for civil rehabilitation. It would erase the deposits he owed. A Hail Mary, if you will. And this would have gotten him off the hook, except now he also owed a bunch of his friends and acquaintances a whole lot of money. The day I was supposed to pay everyone back was October 1st, and there was absolutely no way that I was going to be able to do that. The people who lent Sugimoto-san the money started to wonder if he was really going to be able to pay them back by the deadline, which was October 1st, 2017. They started to put pressure on him as early as 2014, three years in advance. For the people I was genuine friends with, they came to me and we got to have productive conversations about when I would be able to repay them. For the people I only had financial ties with, the people who had stuck around for the sake of good business deals, like traders and debt collectors, 
they'd come to my house and office. They'd even bring people who were involved in, you know, this kind of thing. For the people who are listening, you can't see it, obviously. But here, Sugimoto-san made a gesture that signals the word Yakuza with a simple movement. Listeners, you can try this at home by sliding your index finger diagonally from the tip of your right cheekbone down past your jawline. This indicates a scar. In the old days, when a Yakuza didn't kill you in a fight, he'd slice your face up to show people that he'd let you live. Of course, eventually, some Yakuza even started doing it to themselves to show that they were survivor types. People do that instead of actually saying the word Yakuza in polite conversation because it's a pretty loaded word. Something to keep in mind if you're a foreigner visiting Japan. So when these unwelcome visitors started showing up at Sugimoto-san's workplace without an appointment, it really shook everyone up. One of my employees would come notify me. They'd say, boss, there's someone here to see you. At first, the people that came to see me were just normal-looking guys, but as the due date got closer, the people they sent started to look more and more like that. To be clear, Sugimoto-san never borrowed money directly from the Yakuza, just from his friends and acquaintances. But it's not unusual for people to make a deal with the Yakuza to go collect their money. The agreement is this, that if these tattooed gangsters succeed in collecting the moolah, they will split the money down the middle. I imagine you'd have to be pretty desperate to rope in the Yakuza and lose half your money. You'd have to be pretty certain that it's the only way you'd ever actually see your money again. At first, the Yakuza just came in to yell at Sugimoto-san. It had come in screaming, hey, dumb fuck, pay us back. I dealt with that kind of thing a lot. And I'd say, it doesn't matter how much you yell at me, I can't pay you back what I don't have. Knowing Sugimoto-san, I bet he said it calmly and with that ever-present half-smile of his. And I bet he continued his job as usual and went out drinking with his friends later, as if nothing had happened. But there was one incident that shook him to his core. It happened suddenly. The Yakuza asked, Do you owe this person 10 million yen? Yes, I do. I promised to pay a certain amount per month, but I couldn't keep my promise. And the guy says, You've got three months to pay it back. All of it. And if you don't, you know what happens, right? And then he showed me the photos. That was the scariest moment when he pulled out his phone and, and showed me photos of my family. I was terrified. The photos of his family were all taken with a telephoto lens. Someone had been spying on him and on his wife and his kids. They were all recent. Photos of me playing with my kids, the trip I had just taken to the amusement park with the whole family, things like that. This memory was about seven years old, but Sugimoto-san was visibly shaking when he talked about it. I noticed him trying to steady his hands and the smile he'd had throughout our entire conversation just vanished. I felt all the blood drain from my face. I really thought my family was going to get killed. It was the first time that I thought, if I stay with my family, I'm putting them in danger. This scary messenger came to Sugimoto-san about a year before the 2017 deadline, the one where he was supposed to pay off all his debts. Yakuza loved playing golf, especially the big bosses, and he'd probably dealt with many of them over the years. So by now he knew when to take them seriously. It isn't like the movies. 
Yakuza, the, the ones who are the real deal, don't raise their voice. They don't cause a scene. The, the cold, rational ones are the ones you need to be afraid of. So basically, Sugimoto-san was living in hell. He was in financial ruin, with no way out, pounded by vicious debt collectors that he had no way of repaying. In and of itself, you might think that's about as bad as it could get. Things weren't much better at home. Jake and I could tell early on that his home life wasn't something he really wanted to talk about, so we refrained from asking. But our intern Himari didn't have any reservations, and she asked him about his marriage point blank. It wasn't exactly domestic bliss, at least with my wife. Ooh, this is a sore spot. You could cut the tension in that moment with a knife. But once Sugimoto-san started talking, he began to open up. We didn't fight over money. Um, I didn't have any feelings for my wife, and she didn't have any feelings for me. We had kids, and so that made us a family, and that's that. But around the same time that Yakuza showed Sugimoto the photos of his family, he saw something on his wife's phone. One day I just happened to be watching my kids play with my wife's phone, and I saw a message from another guy pop up. So he did what a lot of people do when they find something suspicious on their partner's phone. He snooped. I knew her passcode. And so I went to her phone while she was taking a bath and read the whole thing. And I also found out she was talking about that guy with her friends. She was telling them, I think I might be falling in love with him. I'm not sure yet. You know, that kind of back and forth. He was a dentist, like a doctor. She was cheating on me with a doctor. He couldn't just ignore it. I hired a detective to follow her. And a pretty famous one, it turns out. A celebrity detective named Haraichi, who appears on TV sometimes. I found out what their next rendezvous was, so I had him follow them to get proof. Turns out, she was meeting the man in Kobe at her sister's apartment. She was letting them use her place while she went over to her boyfriend's. Did you get compensation? In Japan, you can be sued for infidelity. It's quite common for courts to award damages to the spouse who got cheated on. No. You didn't get anything? Nothing. Saida-san got a mischievous look in her eyes and snapped her fingers. Let's go get it, right now. She's a great person to have in your corner. You can always count on her to stand up for you. Except if... Well, I'm a man, so, you know, I've done my fair share of cheating. You're the worst. <laughs> you can also count on Saida-san to put your dumb ass in its place. It's different when a woman cheats than when a man cheats. The way I saw it, you could let it slide if a man cheats. I, I know this is a selfish way to think, but if the wife cheats, it really hurts a man's pride. There is a lot of women in the room right now, you know? Five women and two men, to be exact. Eh, that's true. I'd give it a rest if I were you. If you haven't noticed, you're making some enemies real quick. It's true. Me, Tasanka, and the interns were all less than impressed, and hiding it with varying degrees of success. Hey, I was unimpressed too. Then you were hiding it better than the rest of us. I only got caught once, right after our wedding. Yes, she found out immediately. Right after your wedding? I guess that's typical for people with money. Okay, this is a bit of a generalization, and I think it's mostly true of older generations. But it's kind of socially accepted for men to cheat in Japan, as long as they're still providing for their family. Some wives are willing to turn a blind eye even if they know what's going on. There's a terrible double standard here, of course. Wives who cheat, they're not forgiven. 
After that, our relationship really went downhill. It hurt my feelings that I was there, but she still ran to another man. As fate and irony would have it, about a year later, Sugimoto-san would be running to another woman, but for a very different reason. That story, Sugimoto's Great Escape, after the break. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. It's finally 2017. October 1st is right around the corner. Fall is coming. Sugimoto-san's lenders were angry and agitated, and yet... Um, to be honest, up until two or three days before the deadline, I was optimistic that even if I couldn't pay back the full amount, I could at least pay back some of it. Except he dug himself an impossibly deep hole. The sum he had to pay back just kept growing bigger and bigger, and finally... It started to dawn on me that I couldn't do anything about it. There was no way I could pay. But I was told that if I couldn't, then they'd go to my company or to my family's house. You remember who they are. For the first time, Sugimoto-san saw clearly what he'd been trying not to see for years. He was in an extremely deep hole with no way out. He started to panic. He had some very dark thoughts. I've always hated pain. I have a low tolerance for it. I looked up um, the fastest, most painless way to die, but there is no such thing. Sugimoto-san wasn't just contemplating suicide to escape his grim situation. It's not uncommon for company presidents to buy a life insurance policy for themselves. The company is the beneficiary, so if the president dies, all the insurance money goes towards erasing the company's debt. So sometimes, when people are heavily in debt, and owe a huge amount of money to creditors, those creditors will urge the president to kill himself so they can get some of their money back. His lenders knew about this. Sugimoto-san had been using his life insurance as collateral from the very beginning. That's actually one of the reasons he was able to borrow from so many different places. I've covered stories where people get murdered because of their life insurance policy. In one recent case, Osaka police arrested a 28-year-old man on suspicion of killing the 54-year-old woman who had adopted him. He allegedly drowned the woman in her bathtub last summer, and he had a 150 million yen life insurance policy on her. If killing someone to collect life insurance money is too hard and too risky, you can sometimes get people to do it on their own. In Japan, there's a payoff even if someone commits suicide, although there are time limits to discourage the practice. Loan sharks and other criminal lenders take advantage of this. They know that if you can goad someone into doing the deed, you can collect the money from their beneficiaries. If Sugimoto-san had died by either murder or coercion, 
his many angry creditors might have actually gotten their money back. But Sugimura-san had to worry about his family, too. I thought it might be better if I died because then at least the money would come in from my life insurance. But all the money would have gone to the company. I don't think my family would have gotten any of it, so I decided not to commit suicide. If the money would have gone to my family, then I probably would have hung myself on the spot. There's sort of an obsession with settling your debts in Japan. It's part of this honor code everyone just accepts. If you can't, you have to take responsibility somehow, for the sake of yourself, your company, your family. And you might remember Sugimoto-san saying that he comes from a pretty distinguished one. For the first time, one of us failed. And it was me. Towards the end of September, Sugimoto-san sobered up to the situation. He definitely couldn't pay his debts back. There was the threat that someone might kill him to claim his life insurance money. But most of all, there was a threat to his family and his fear of being an embarrassment to them. So on September 30th, he did the only thing left to do. He ran away. I decided to leave a note at the company. Uh, what did I write? Uh, I'm sorry that I ran away when the company was in trouble. I will pay back the people who lent me money no matter how many years it takes. I cannot pay it now. Please give me time. I'm so sorry. Something along those lines. And then I ran. He ran, but with help. I contacted Saita-san. Sugimoto-san's escape reminded me a bit of Morimoto, Jake's accountant. The one that vanished right before tax day. It was March 5th, time to pay up, and he couldn't pay. I wonder if running away was a last-minute decision for Morimoto as well, and if he ever considered... What? Killing himself? I don't know. I considered him a friend, but I just don't think he's the kind of guy who would kill himself. He's such a con man. He's such a con man. And Sugimoto? Not a con man. Just got himself into an impossible situation. And I also felt that, you know, that he cares very much about his kids. Because, okay, the marriage part was rough. But when he talks about his kids, you could see the emotion come up there. So I think for him, running away was also an act of self-sacrifice. I don't think he did it lightly, and I don't think it was a selfish thing. I think he's like, the only way I can see to protect my family and get out of this situation is to run. Why do you think that running would help? Because you have to understand how the Yakuza work. If loan sharks or the Yakuza can menace his wife and kids or reach him through them, they can keep applying pressure on him. But if he's gone, if he's vanished, and even they don't know really where he is, they lose value as leverage. In a way, by completely cutting ties with them, they are cut out of the equation. If he has no idea that the Yakuza are harassing his family because even they can't reach him, now what's the point of using that card? Terrorizing the family is only a means of making the guy cough up the money. But if that can't possibly work, then it just becomes a waste of time. And it's a prosecutable crime. So their only choice is to find him. Sugimoto-san didn't feel like he could turn to his family. And he definitely couldn't turn to one of the many friends that he owed money. He felt like he was all alone. And in his moment of need, the first thing that popped into his head was a TV show. 
I definitely first heard about Yonigie on TV. You probably know it already, but、uh, back then there was a TV drama called Yonigie Main Office. Sound familiar? That's probably how I got the idea into my head. Yes, that show is like my master, and I'm a mere apprentice. I watch it all the time. Maybe you remember Yonigeya Main Office. It was the manga series that inspired Saito-san to open her Yonigeya company in the first place. And when Sugimoto-san did a Google search to find Yonigeya, he landed on the same listing that I did. He was on the phone with Saito-san within a matter of minutes. He said he's just taking a suitcase with him, so I was like, "All right, then there's no need for us to come pick you up." So I got his new living arrangement ready for him and told him to come up to Tokyo. They negotiated a price. This was a simpler job than a lot of them. Saito-san didn't have to move this client's furniture or fend off angry partners, but they still had to arrange a completely new life for the guy. Let's see. The interview fee and arrangement fee were about thirty thousand yen, and then there was a consulting fee of about thirty thousand yen. All in all, it was about seventy thousand yen. About seven hundred dollars. It was very cheap. Yeah. Sorry, I changed my mind. Can you pay me more? <laughs> The cost of a yonigiya is about three times more than a normal moving company. However. If you think about all the extra services they provide, it does seem like a pretty good deal. We'll tell them it's one hundred thousand yen, but we'll get some people that will ask if we can do it for thirty thousand. What do you think they're paying for? Like, why don't you go to McDonald's then, or a goddamn steakhouse? A steakhouse with very good customer service. Saito-san didn't show it. Part of her job is to be stoic and unflappable, but she was pretty concerned about Sugimoto-san's well-being after listening to his story. She urged him to get to Tokyo as soon as possible. To be honest, I thought maybe this guy's going to die. Someone who would decide to run away at this very last minute is probably also someone who would impulsively off themselves. Sugimoto-san wasted no time getting ready for his exit. He withdrew about six thousand dollars in cash, got a new cell phone, and packed his bags. I left the house in the same way that I would if I was going on a business trip. So I think my family was pretty shocked when I didn't come back. And the next thing he knew, he was on a bullet train to Shinagawa Station in Tokyo. It's about a three-hour trip. Saito-san was there at the station, waiting for him. What place did we meet at again? Uh, Renwar. Oh, that's right, the coffee shop. And that's how Sugimoto-san stepped foot into his new life. But it's not as easy as you'd think to shake off your past. Remember what Saito-san said last episode about all the precautions you should take if you're serious about not being found. Most people make a mistake or two along the way. It's just so easy to forget something. When I first came to Tokyo, I had my phone off at all times. But when I started missing my family and turned my phone on, I think. That's when my cover was blown. I saw missed calls from my family, and、um, debt collectors had also tried to contact me. Saito-san tells her clients to get rid of old phones for good reasons. Sugimoto-san was lucky that no one was smart enough to use this mistake, turning on his phone to find him. However, his politically connected older brother—that's a different story. He was able to use his resources to track Sugimoto-san down using the phone signal. Nobody came looking except my family. 
I ran away without saying a word to any of them, so my older brother just came once to check if I was dead or alive. Yeah, I haven't seen him since then. Sugimoto makes a point of saying several times that he is who he is and that he and his brother are not the same person. His brother, however, sounds like a cool cat, a stoic character. Some debt collectors showed up at the brother's office a couple of times, demanding that he take responsibility and pay them on Sugimoto-san's behalf. His brother didn't budge. I think he just shook them off by saying something like, this isn't my hanko in the paperwork. A hanko is like a stamp that acts like a signature in Japan. The brother was basically saying, I'm not the one who signed the loan, so fuck off. He never let on that he knew where Sugimoto-san had gone. My brother always had this attitude of like, you're you and I'm me. Our companies and jobs are completely separate, so we have nothing to do with each other. It's unclear to us if the politician brother told anyone else in the family about his secret. The feeling I'm getting is that he confirmed that his brother was alive, and that was that. The rest wasn't any of his business. It's very possible that most of his family was left in the dark, wondering if he'd ever come back alive from his work trip. Meanwhile, Sugimoto-san tried to settle into his new life in Tokyo, and that meant renewing his driver's license in his own name. Of course, that came with risk. Like, it would make him potentially findable, but he also had to find work. One day, when I went to get my driver's license renewed, they said, Sugimoto-san, please follow us to another room. There's a missing persons report out for you that we would like to discuss. This sounds like a particularly miserable trip to the DMV. And it illustrates how tricky it is to get anything done when you're trying to lay low. The police didn't order me around, like, call your family. They just made suggestions, like, why not reach out to your family since they've filed a missing persons report? If you're going to call them, we'd let you use the phone here. Well, that was nice. Exactly. They were so kind. And so I called my family right away. I told them how sorry I was. Hearing my family's voices brought tears to me. Imagine what it must have been like to get that phone call to finally hear the voice of someone you weren't sure you'd ever hear from again. You have a friend who evaporated? I have several friends who evaporated. That's the nature of reporting on the underworld. People are there one day, and suddenly, they are not. That's usually because they are on the run from the cops or from other criminals. But this person, I was really worried about. For years, I felt so much relief that when I got off the phone, I was crying and laughing, and if I think about it, I couldn't really tell you the ratio of the two. I certainly wasn't angry. And so I wasn't surprised to hear the reaction of his family was similar. They didn't get mad at me. In the beginning, they told me to come back home soon. But, but like I said, I come from a well-known family. And for the first time, one of us failed. And it was me. I didn't want to go home because I felt that it wouldn't do anyone any good if a bastard like me came home. I don't think that my family feels this way. It's just me that's getting caught up in these kind of thoughts. In the eyes of Sugimoto-san's family, what he did wasn't enough to be disowned. They really wanted him back. But remember, Sugimoto-san and his wife weren't on the best of terms. And this was really the nail in the coffin. After reaching out to my family, I, I got divorced, officially, on paper. Until then, I don't think she knew if I was dead or alive. No matter how she felt about him, that had to be rough. She probably had no idea of the trouble he'd been in, and as a result, had no idea why he'd ever run away. Had it been a woman, 
some secret life? What if he got into an accident and was lying dead somewhere? Something I hear a lot from people who are left behind is how their imaginations run wild, trying to fill in for the unknown. They are tortured by it. I really felt that I didn't want to burden my family. So I didn't tell them, but they told me that I had it all wrong and that not telling them was far worse. Sugimoto-san would spend the next weeks and months agonizing over his failure and the choices he made. That's after the break. What's the first thing you would do if you left everything behind? No friends, no car, no job, not much money. I don't know. Cry? He was just holed up in his room for a while. (laughs) Sugimoto-san had gone into hikikomori mode, which is basically when you withdraw from society and don't leave your room. We asked him what he was doing in there, alone in that room. Was he reading manga? Watching some TV? No, I just stared into space, really. And the landlord was taking care of you. Saito-san has a network of trusted landlords who get rooms ready for her newly escaped clients. They offer cheap, safe spaces for clients to stay a while while they find their footing. And the landlords will, in addition, keep an eye on their tenants and report to Saito-san if they sense anything wrong. Ah, yes, him. He was dragging you around everywhere. So it wasn't like complete hikikomori. But it does seem a bit unusual to have a landlord looking after you night and day. Well, the landlord is kind of a weird guy. He would drag me out of my room and suggest that we go here or there and take me on drives. Yeah, I mean, this landlord would call me up and be like, Sugimoto seems a little down, so I'm going to take him for a ride. And I'd be like, no, 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 he's going to get even more depressed being around. You'll leave him alone. But the landlord would not leave him alone. And he got it into his head that Sugimoto-san had some kind of digestive tract issue. He'd even cook for Sugimoto-san. But get this, he would spit in the food. I was like, what the hell are you doing? And the landlord said, well, he has a weak stomach. If you give him some spit, it'll make him feel better. I was like, seriously? You're making him eat that? That's basically abuse, right? While I definitely wouldn't knowingly eat a meal covered in spit, I found the story weirdly touching. Imagine that your landlord, generally a person who wants nothing to do with you except to siphon off 50% of your paycheck, sees you as such a pathetic creature that he actually starts to care about you, enough to spit in your food, in a helpful way. That's just fucking weird, Choco. He was just kind of a weird guy. He's the kind of guy who brings his own shoju to a restaurant. You can't just bring your own alcohol to a restaurant. But he'll call the waitress like, Hey there, young lady, can you bring me some water? And then splash the shoju into it and drink the whole thing. And then he'd whip out a cucumber and munch on that too. He does weird shit like that without even batting an eye. And so Sugimoto was being roped into this landlord's crazy antics, even though he was supposed to be resting and taking a break. I kind of love the image of this ex-Kyoto socialite being cheered up by this bizarre landlord. But it's safe to say that the landlord wasn't going to leave Sugimoto-san in peace. So Sugimoto-san decided he needed to find something to do, maybe sooner than he intended. 
I didn't know anyone when I moved here. So anytime I needed help, the first thing I do is go to Saita-san. And pretty soon I was like, I'll do anything. Please let me work for you. I was like, sure, why don't you try it out? But, hmm, you know, to go from a place with so much money to an unrefined company like mine, doing manual labor. So I was like, is he cut out for this? Saita-san talked it over with her other employees, and they agreed that they'd give Sugimoto-san a shot to join their ranks, to become a night mover himself. At first, when it came to carrying stuff, I couldn't lift anything, like anything heavy. He was like Bambi, like a little baby deer. <laughs> but before I knew it, he was carrying a fridge by himself. People can do anything they set their mind to. He's a key player on the Yonigiya team now. That's a real 180. Imagine being CEO your whole life and then you're doing manual labor for Saitasan. It's a different world. So with the golf course, I owned the place and I was working hard to run it. So I walked around with my head up and I could do as I pleased. But now I'm working under other people's command. And I'm learning more than I did in my other job. Like how the employees who were working for me might have felt. Sugimoto-san eventually branched out and got a second job. I'm sort of like an assistant for the CEOs that I know. Wherever they go, I follow them, drive them, things like that. There's a reason he was working so hard doing two jobs. Remember the letter he left behind at his company? Sugimoto-san promised to pay his loans back, even if it took him his entire lifetime. And it was not an empty promise. Here's the reality. He owes so much money that he could never pay it off, and he knows that. He's about $8 million in the hole, and he's starting over from nothing. But there are three people who lent Sugimoto-san money that he feels like he has to do right by, and combined, he owes them about $600,000. That's how much I personally want to pay back, even if it means putting my life on the line. These three people really lent me their strength and said I can pay them back whenever I'm ready, even if it took the rest of my life. And that in return, it would be okay for me to run away. I'm prepared to pay them back even if it means dying. My other debts I can pay back by claiming personal bankruptcy. Sugimoto-san ran away, but it was never his intention to run away from all his problems. He had to restructure his life and his priorities in order to pay these three people back. And for him, Yonige was the best solution. It was both his punishment and his path to redemption. I felt guilty at the time, but as five years have gone by, those feelings have gradually faded. I 100% think I'm better off. Definitely, 100% that I didn't end up dead. When I arrived in Tokyo, I hit rock bottom. But now I think that there is no rock bottom. That no matter what happens in the future, there won't be any rock bottom. I've experienced so much pain that I've come to that conclusion. Many Yonige clients want to reset their lives and sever all connection to the past. But Sugimoto-san is another type. He Yonige'd as a stopgap, to pause his life and fix things with the hopes of one day reconnecting with his friends and family, when he felt like he'd earned the right to return. There are two people I call my best friends, but I haven't even kept in touch with them. To say success sounds like an exaggeration, but I think that I think that once I rebuild my life on this side of the country, I'd like to first go see those and my family. Sugimoto-san hasn't maintained contact with anyone back home, 
with one exception, his kids. I went to see them a few times, and I, I told my kids that I'd like to live together again someday. Once I atone for my sins, sounds weird, but once I properly pay back my debts, I asked if they could be patient until then. There are three kids. His oldest son is in high school, and he has a daughter and son in elementary school. I think that the younger two don't really know what's going on, but my eldest son understands everything. When I said, your dad has burdened a lot of people, but is working hard in Tokyo to pay them back, my eldest son said, that's really cool of you, dad. <laughs> I was really touched at that moment. You know, I know how he might have felt. My daughter grew up in the U.S., but I decided to work in Japan, so I was often absent from her life. So it was a delight when she came to Japan this summer to intern with me on some journalism jobs and this program. For example, when former Prime Minister Abe was assassinated, I was in Hokkaido going to private detective school, and so I sent her to the scene of the crime almost immediately. She hustled and she did the job. She did it well. Before she went back to the U.S., she told me that she now understood why my job was so demanding and what it was like to be on call 24-7, and that she was proud of me for working hard. Honestly, that meant a lot to me. In two or three years, my eldest son will go on to university, and I'll probably say to him, why not come to Tokyo for university and live with me? I have these sorts of hopes that I hold on to. You can tell that Sugimoto-san cares a lot about his kids, and it seems like they've reacted well to the truth, even if it might have been a hard one to tell. I asked Sugimoto-san if his backstory is something he otherwise usually keeps on the down low. No, I'd probably talk about it. I mean, I'm the type that who'd want to show off that I'd been running a business, but then lost it all, but then bounced back to where I am now to say that this is my life. There are highs like mountains and lows like mountains. This story could have easily become entitled rich guy who cheats on his wife, makes bad financial choices, and runs away from all of his problems. But I'm a sucker for people who can embrace the highs and lows of their lives and can laugh at it and say, isn't that a good story? I thought it was. And Saida-san certainly seemed to think so too. Ah, I'm so satisfied hearing about the affairs. Sugimoto, you bastard. Saito-san is calling him a bastard, but she clearly adores Sugimoto-san. I get the sense that their company is like a little family. It's kind of like that in a lot of companies in Japan, but after everything that they've been through together, it's probably especially true for them. While Jake and I were packing up after they left, he told me to turn the recorder on because he had a thought. Like, I had this idea. Mm -hmm. You know how Saito-san and her crew are really close, and they all know each other really well? What if we went to Morimoto's boss, and we asked him what he actually knows about Morimoto? Oh, yeah, that's a really good idea. Yeah, at the very least, you'd have a personnel file. And there's a really good chance that he was the last person to talk to Morimoto. Yeah, that's very true. And maybe it would be good for him to talk to us? Maybe he'd want to talk to us? Yeah, because, I mean, if anybody got fucked over by this guy, it's going to be his boss. Yeah, even worse than me and Steve. Which reminds me, we could ask Steve, because I think Steve would make the introduction. Yeah, let's try that out.
Next week on The Evaporated, we visit Morimoto's old accounting firm and learn that one of Morimoto's scariest clients did find him shortly after he vanished. And unlike Jake and Steve, he was not so forgiving. He was the only person who caught Morimoto. He took him to Tokyo Bay and gave him an ultimatum. You either pay me back or you sink. Which is it going to be? The Evaporated, Gone with the Gods, is a production of Campside Media with Sony Music Entertainment. It was reported by Jake Adelstein and myself, Shoko Planbeck. I also wrote this episode. Our producer is Tisanka Siripala. The executive producer is Josh Dean. Story editing by Josh Dean and Amy Planbeck. Fact-checking by Anika Robbins and Himari Iwamoto. Sound design, mix, and engineering by Taka Yasuzawa, with assistant engineering by Yurosh Jovanovic and Alex Portfelix. Additional reporting and production assistance by Himari Iwamoto. Voice acting on this episode by Miki Hanta and David Neal. Editorial support by Aliyah Papes, Doug Slaywin, and Destiny Dingle. The executive producers at Campside Media are Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scheer. If you enjoyed The Evaporated, Gone with the Gods, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. It really does help other people find the show. And if you'd like to listen to all nine episodes of Gone with the Gods now, ad-free, subscribe to Sony Music's Binge channel on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.